contemplate it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I know the sign says I'm still in 1 Corinthians, but actually I finished off, or 2 Corinthians, but I finished off 2 Corinthians last week. And um, so I just decided to go ahead into Ephesians this week. And um, we can go forward in Ephesians for a while. And if there's a desire for, for another topic to be followed for a while, we can do that, come back to Ephesians or whatever. But <clears throat> for now, we'll start Ephesians. So the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. Now, this is a map of Paul's third missionary journey. You probably recognize that. It's the Eastern Mediterranean world. So after uh, <clears throat> being back in, uh, in Antioch for uh, maybe about a year, after uh, the end of his second missionary journey, which had ended actually in Corinth, Paul had, we think, sailed by ship from Corinth back to, uh, uh, to Antioch uh, in Syria, uh, and he spent about a year, and then he went out again with his helpers, uh, Silas and uh, Titus and Timothy, maybe some others. And they, so they went through Cilicia, and they went through Galatia, a region, uh, all of these regions are in what is today Turkey, and what we call geographically Asia Minor, that's that peninsula that makes up most of Turkey today, or we sometimes can refer to it as the Anatolian Peninsula, so they went through uh, Cilicia and, and Galatia, and there were several churches there in the region of Galatia that Paul had uh, actually founded during his first missionary journey. And they might be familiar, as we read, read in the book of Acts uh, from time to time about the church that Paul went to, Derby and Lystra and uh, Iconium and Antioch and Pisidia. And then on through the province of Asia, through the interior of the province of Asia. Now, Asia is this complicated thing because we have, when we say Asia Minor, we mean the Anatolian Peninsula. And that's the peninsula between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea on the north and south and the Aegean on the, on the uh, west side. That's the peninsula of Asia Minor. The Anatolian Peninsula makes up most of what is today Turkey. That's so Asia Minor, right. Then we think of the continent of Asia today, and of course that includes all of what is, well, no, not the European part of Turkey, but all of Asia Minor, plus this gigantic continent that stretches from the Ural Mountains in the west to the Pacific Ocean, the Kamchatka Peninsula on the Pacific Ocean in the east, the Bering Strait, actually is one of the boundaries of Asia, and on the north, from the Arctic Ocean to, on the south, the Indian Ocean. And it's this huge continent, part of the Eurasian landmass, and that, that's Asia. And then there's the Roman province of Asia, which you see there in that kind of, uh, I don't know, orangish color, darkish orangish color there on that map. And that's the Roman province of Asia, which is like the western part of um, the Anatolian Peninsula. So he went through there and on his third missionary journey, and he came to Ephesus. And for three months, he preached in the synagogue, standard operating procedure with Paul. You go to the synagogue first, and you preach that Jesus Christ, the Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ, the Messiah. And some believed. 
Of course, the first people he comes to there at, at Ephesus, remember, were those 12 believers who were disciples of John the Baptist. And he says, did you receive the Holy Ghost when you believed? And they said, we haven't even heard whether there was any Holy Spirit. And he said, well, to what were you baptized? And they said, well, to John's baptism. And so they were all ready to believe in the, in the Messiah that should come. They were followers of John the Baptist, who was to prepare the way for Christ. And so when they heard, they immediately believed, and they received the Holy Spirit. And uh, then Paul continued then preaching for three months in the synagogue. And uh, some believed, but some became hardened, and they opposed. Of course, this, is, this sounds like the story in every city Paul goes to, which it pretty much is. So some were opposed, and so then Paul went and preached to the Gentiles afterwards. First to the Jews, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's kind of the story of how Paul, what Paul did. In every city he came to, preach to the Jews first in the synagogue, and uh, then go and preach to the Gentiles. So he went and he preached for two years, and, and held, preached and held discussions in the uh, lecture hall of a fellow named Turinus, and um, there were great things done there. People who had uh, been involved in black magic, had been involved in, well, the magic period, in, in occult art, arts, things like that, the occult, uh, they brought out their scrolls of occult uh, secrets, of um, secrets of the occult and how to do spells and things like that. It'd be like people bringing out Ouija boards and, and um, tarot cards and things like that today. And uh, they had a big bonfire and burned them all to the value of quite amount of money. And then uh, Paul also was, was doing miracles by the power of God. And uh, it was quite a thing. And the name of, of Christ was greatly honored in the region. In fact, some Jewish exorcists even got the bright idea to maybe try and uh, cast out a demon. Uh, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And that didn't work out well for them at all. Because uh, the demon said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? So great things happening there in Ephesus. But then Demetrius the silversmith got angry because it was hurting his business. And would to God that he would send a revival in our day that would hurt the business of bad businesses. Uh, you know, when uh, Charles Finney preached, uh, I think, like a six-week meeting in Rochester, New York, uh, the saloon keepers became outraged, and they were saying that Finney was ruining their business uh, there. And uh, I wish that we could make the, the bars and the casinos and uh, the places that uh, cater to, to fleshly lusts, uh, I wish we could make them all so mad at us that, that you know, it wouldn't be a question of whether we were going to go and pick at them. They'd want to come and pick at us uh, for, you know, for ruining their business. Not that I want them to be, actually, I'd rather they get saved too. And, uh, and then they close down their own businesses. That would be great. But uh, Demetrius the silversmith got angry, remember, and there arose no small stir about the way about that time. And he got the other silversmiths uh, uh, excited because he said, Paul, is uh, if, if Paul gets his way, nobody is going to worship our goddess that we make shrines to anymore. 
That's how they made their money, uh, by, uh, by false religion. They catered to false religions. It wasn't good enough to make silver stuff for people uh, for other reasons, but where you really get money from people is if you do it and backed up by a false religion. And so uh, there in Ephesus, they had the temple of Artemis. Uh, in the old King James, uh, the name is translated Diana. The confusion there is that uh, within the um, ancient world, the Hellenistic world, and culturally it's still Hellenistic even though it's Roman, there was a lot of syncretism going on. So when they would... Uh, they were these various polytheistic societies. So there's Near Eastern or what we might call Asian, Middle Eastern, Near Eastern polytheistic religion. And there's Greek polytheistic religion and there's Roman polytheistic religion and a bunch of others too. And what would happen is when they would run into each other, they'd say, oh, you've got a God who does like fertility. Oh, we've got one of those too. And uh, oh, you've got a God who uh, is the supreme God. Yeah, we've got one of those too. And so they would just say, well, it's the same God. So this, oh, we worship the same gods thing. This goes back a long ways. And so uh, this, actually there was a god locally, I think, called Kubila, Kubile, uh, I think Sibila would be, we would get one pronunciation of that. And that was identified with Diana, who's identified with Artemis. Anyway, this god. And they had a big temple for her there in the non-existent one, uh, there in uh, Ephesus, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, or Diana of the Ephesians, there in Ephesus. So they were afraid that they were, their temple was going to be put out of business. Uh, well, so um, they made a riot, a big riot, and uh, Paul uh, was in some danger, quite a bit of danger. Later he says, if I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Apparently talking about this, uh, uh, the animal spirits of these people, uh, the way they acted like animals. People can get really, really wild in a riot, in a mob situation, and they can do things uh, that, that they wouldn't do in sober, on sober reflection. So, anyway... Uh, Paul found it expedient to leave Ephesus. As you see from the map there, up there, he went on up through Troas, briefly crossed into Macedonia. said he had, remember in 2 Corinthians, as I know it, I had no peace when I was in Troas because I was worried about you guys. While he was in Macedonia, he wrote the second epistle to the Corinthians that we just finished studying. Went on down, visited Corinth, came on back through Troas on his way back through Troas. Remember, that was where uh, Paul waxed long-winded. We uh, may not be much of a preacher, but I'm the son of a preacher, and we can identify with, with that. We tend to wax long-winded. And uh, remember Eutychus sitting there in the window? Not a good place to sit if you're prone to drowsiness when you listen to someone talk. And, and he fell out the window, and Paul raised him up from the dead. And that was in Troas. And Paul went down. Didn't, he had to get on to Jerusalem. He said, I must needs go to Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, he uh, didn't have time to go through Ephesus itself, but he asked the, he sent ahead and asked the elders of the church at Ephesus to meet him in Miletus, and he met with them there for some final uh, exhortations and um, told them how we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. He said that there would be 
false uh, false prophets who would enter in and not sparing the flock and um, told them to be on guard. And then he went on his way and came to Jerusalem. Of course, as you know, there he was, uh, the, the Jews uh, attacked him and uh, delivered him in the hand of the Romans and he appealed to Caesar and eventually was sent to Caesar, was sent to Rome and uh, actually had two different imprisonments there in Rome. And uh, I'm not sure whether Ephesians was written during his first or his second imprisonment in Rome. Do you know? That sounds right. Yeah, I've, I've read that it was AD 62, and that sounds like his second imprisonment, because that would have been in the reign of Nero or uh, coming up on the reign of Nero. So, yeah, I think you're right. So, anyway, Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians while he was imprisoned in Rome. It's one of the prison epistles. So, Ephesus. Ephesus. It had been founded as a Greek colony, actually a colony of Athens. About 1,000 years earlier, the Greeks were great seafarers and colonists, and the Aegean Sea was the center of their world. So the east shore of the Aegean, almost as much as the west. And so it's founded as a colony of the Greeks. It was about a, that was about 1,000 years earlier, and there had probably been some settlement there at Ephesus before that time. It was a natural place for a settlement. So the Greeks colonized it. It had been ruled by various empires, the Lydian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Alexandrian Empire, and finally the Roman Empire, and um, had been under Rome's rule for about 200 years by the time Paul wrote this letter. It was the chief city and crossroads of the region, notable for its mixture of Greek and Asian culture. Uh, The Greek culture came in across the Aegean, the Asian culture along the river valley leading up into the interior to places, to cities such as Laodicea and Colossae. Uh, which also um, are the recipients of letters. When John, in the book of Revelation, wrote his circular letter to the seven churches of Asia, Ephesus was one of them, Laodicea was another. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said, make sure that you have this letter to the Colossians, to, to Colossae, read among, in, at the church at Laodicea, and he said, make sure that you read the letter from the church at Laodicea. Some scholars think that the letter to the Ephesians was meant by the letter to the Laodiceans. seems like all of these letters kind of made the rounds of the local churches, and you would expect that they wouldn't. Here we are reading them today. Um, maybe if he, if he had, uh, it wouldn't have made much sense because it would have been way in the future. We said, well, the letter to, the, to Las Colinas, the letter to the believers at Las Colinas, but that's way ahead, and we don't rate that high. So anyway, that region there, a mixture of culture, which was common at that era, um, Paul came to Ephesus, his third missionary journey, as I said, and later met with the elders on Miletus. Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesian church while in prison in Rome around A.D. 62. All right, here we go. Let's read. I'm going to cover today the first uh, 14, 13, 14 verses of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, 
by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. All right. So in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, to grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. More or less of a standard Pauline greeting, as we are familiar with in Paul's letters. It begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So as usual in his apostles, Paul emphasizes that his apostleship is from God by God's choice, not of his own merit or by his own choice. But God called him and chose him, and it was God's doing. He refers to the believers as saints. This is also common. We saw this in uh, Corinthians. Uh, believers are counted holy and are being made holy. They're called to be holy, they're counted as holy, and they're being made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit going on in the hearts of the believers. On to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Now this verse begins a single sentence. Maybe you noticed it seemed to run on for a while. It just sort of went on and phrase after phrase. Well, it does. It is the longest sentence in the New Testament, in the original Greek, and it continues through the end of verse 14. Uh, the English translations generally divide it into sentences. You saw here the New King James. I think we had a couple of periods in there, uh, starting new sentences, just to give us poor English speakers a place to catch a breath. But in Greek, it's all one sentence, and you can do that in Greek. And Paul wrote some pretty complicated Greek sometimes. So uh, this section, these 12 verses, this long sentence in the Greek, is a hymn of praise to God for what God is doing for his own glory in Christ for the salvation of believers. So God is doing this. He's doing it for his own glory. He's doing it in Christ. He's doing it for the salvation of believers. He's doing it for his own glory. Now, that may sound strange to our ears because generally we do not um, react well or, or it doesn't sit well with us that someone would do something for his own glory. And it should not sit well for us that any human does anything for his own glory, least of all us. If I were to tell you that I am teaching this Bible study for my own glory, you should be extremely alarmed. 
you, you should actually prevent me from continuing if I were to be of that mind, and I'm sure Brother Robert would lead the charge for that, because uh, I should not do that. That would be wrong and uh, for me to do that. In fact, I must make sure that I do not do it for my own glory. So why is it okay for God to do that and not for us? Simple answer, almost insultingly simple, because he's God and we are not. Does that mean he's allowed to do wrong? No, it's not wrong. Here's the thing. It belongs to him. The glory belongs to him. It is rightfully his. It is not ours. If, if um, I go, well, we have electronic deposit for our checks now, but in the old days, old, old, let's talk old days, old days, when I used to work in the pacemaker grocery store in Belvedere, Illinois, Second groceries. If you ever, during that, that summer of 1977, if you bought groceries at Pacemaker Grocery Store in Belvedere, Illinois, and you were traveling or something, I might have sacked your groceries for you or put them on the shelf or especially the dairy department. But back in those days, come Friday, we'd go over to the service desk and uh, ask the lady behind the service desk for our check. I'd like to pick up my check. And uh, why shouldn't I pick up my check? It's mine. I'm entitled to it. I work for it. It belongs to me. And she'd give it to me. Now, if I went and I said, I want to pick up Jim's check. Jim was my friend. I said, I want to pick up Jim's check. She says, well, um, he didn't tell me. She would. I never did this. But she, she would say, well, now, Jim didn't say anything to me about you picking up his check because it's not mine. See, it doesn't belong to me, and I shouldn't pick it up. But it's more than that with God and his glory. It's not only that the glory is God's, but it can only rightfully be his. He can't give it to another. It would be wrong for him to give it to another. Now, I could pick out my check and just give it to Jim. Here, Jim, I don't want my check this month. I never did that either. But <clears throat> I could have given Jim my check, and that would have been, I would have been within my rights to do that. But it would be wrong for God to give his glory to anyone else. Here we have to think, there's a four-star general in the army. And he walks out and walks around the base in the uniform of a four-star general with all the braid and scrambled eggs on his bill of his cap and, and the four stars on his shoulder boards if, or, or his collar insignia, depending on which, uniform he's, which class of uniform he's wearing. That's right, isn't it? He's entitled to wear that uniform. It is fitting and right that he should do so. Now, what if the general were to go back to his, his quarters and change out of that uniform, into the uniform of a private soldier. He could do that. He's the general. He can do that. It'd be a little odd, and he'd only do it for a special purpose. Maybe the general wants to walk around and find out things uh, that he can find out in that way. The analogy breaks down with God, who knows everything anyway. Uh, but God could lay aside his glory briefly, and as Christ did, um, come as a man. But... What if the general, back to our four-star general, what if he decides he's going to lend his uniform to a private? Hey, you know what would be a good joke, private? Why don't you take my four-star dress uniform, put it on, and walk around the base and see if everybody salutes you? No, no. If the private does that, first of all, he has committed a major military offense, and he's going to be court-martialed, but that will be nothing compared to what will happen to the general you know, when, when the Joint Chiefs of Staff find out, because that's basically who a four-star general off, uh, answers to, 
you had a private put on your uniform, you better have an awfully good reason for that. It's, it doesn't belong to him, and it's wrong to clothe that other in that. And for God to, to give his glory to another would be wrong. It's rightfully his. And when God does something for his own glory, it's like a general putting on his own uniform. It belongs to him. It ought to be on him. He ought to wear it. The army runs best when he wears it. And legally, that's how it ought to be. And of course, God can't do wrong, so he's not going to give his glory to another. So God does these things. God has done the plan of salvation for his own glory. And he's done it for us in Christ. Everything that we have, the salvation that we have, the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we enjoy that in Christ. And the um, assurance of our salvation and the, the hope of heaven and all the things that we enjoy uh, from God, the heavenly bless, the, you know, the uh, spiritual blessings in heavenly places, all we, we enjoy, all those things in Christ. And that is the theme of this uh, passage, and that is the sort of the key phrase, which keeps getting re- repeated in him, in Christ, in the beloved, throughout this passage. Okay, now, Paul immediately identifies God as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, And that does away with the nonsense that you might, oh, well, this is the same God as, no, this is not the same God as any other God. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, period. Whether in that age, if anyone wants, oh, you mean Zeus, oh, you mean, oh, you mean Jupiter. No, I don't mean Jupiter, and no, I don't mean Zeus or Apollo or Mercury or any of the others. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it also does away with any sort of nonsense that might go around in our day. Oh, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. No, they don't. Ben, I covered that ground. I touched that point before. But our society likes to say that. And uh, actually, Orthodox Muslims and, and Bible-believing Christians both deny that that. The Muslim first phrase of the Muslim confession of faith is God is one and he does not beget. Well, God did beget the God that we worship, the real one, the God who made the heavens and the earth, did, uh, does beget. Now, the begot does not refer to a historical event, but to a relationship in which the Son stands to the Father. But anyway, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Um, every spiritual blessing refers to every blessing ministered by the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual in that it's ministered by the Holy Spirit. And these are blessings in heavenly places. Heavenly places are the origin of these blessings. That is, they come from God, who is in heaven. And they are for the purpose of glorifying God, who is in heaven, by bringing us, who are believers in Christ, into heaven to be with him, to glorify him there forever. Onward and quickly as time moves on. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Again, notice the key phrase, in him, just as he chose us in him. Just as refers back to blessed in the preceding verse, meaning he chose just as he blessed. That is, just as he blessed us, he chose us. He blesses us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He chose us in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God chose that all those who would be in Christ would be made holy and without blame. This is why if you are in Christ, you will have a desire uh, to be holy and without blame before him. 
and uh, to say, well, I'm in Christ, but I have no desire at all to be holy and without blame before him, is to reveal a mistake, something, you, there, there is something wrong here, uh, if you are, you, you could say that, but um, if we are in Christ, then we do desire to be holy and without blame, for he, he has chosen that he is going to make us so. We are, again, counted so, uh, counted holy, and um, I'll get this, there we go. And uh, he is making us so, changing us from glory to glory into the image of his son. Good. Verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Uh, Predestined us to adoption as sons, again, those who are in Christ. Adoption in uh, the Roman world meant... uh, a son coming into the full rights of an adult son. And uh, so uh, there's a sense in which it could be said we are adopted. There's also a sense in which it could be said that uh, we will be adopted. At any rate, um, he did this uh, for his own good pleasure. He did this because it pleased him to do so, because he decided that it was best, and he knows what is best. So when he decides that something is best, he's sure to be right about that. He didn't do it because uh, uh, we were going to earn it. He didn't say, well, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to provide salvation for those who will earn it. But no, it wasn't that at all. He decided to do this because it pleased him to do it. Verse 6 the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Beloved is rightly capitalized there because the New King James is good about capitalizing uh, pronouns or um, this is this is not really a pronoun but a, a noun that stands in for deity. The beloved means Christ, his beloved son. Remember uh, the Lord said on the Mount of Transfiguration This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So God did this for his glory. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. And it's right, proper, and the only good way that God should do this for his glory. Things are right in the world when God is glorified. Uh, Things are in right relations. And they should be so. And God did it for his glory. And he did it entirely by his grace, not at all by our deserts. we had, a, we had a discussion this morning. How should this be spelled? By desserts, I mean uh, not according to our apple pie that we serve after uh, apple pie is sort of, you know, in, you know that concept in Platonic heaven, there's the perfect, the perfection of everything. And say in Platonic heaven for dessert, there's a slice of apple pie. Liam made it. But anyway, um, no, y'all, I'm sure y'all make good apple pie too. But um, desserts, the things, what we deserved what we have deserved. So not, not the sweet stuff that we eat at the end of the meal, but the things that we have deserved. So I use that word there. Um, not our deserts, not our dry, dry places either, but according to what we deserved. He did it by his grace, not at all by our works. Uh, he made us accepted in Christ. Christ is accepted, and we are in him. Uh, I think of... Uh, Charles Wesley's that verse from Charles Wesley's hymn about Christ, uh, Arise My Soul, Arise, about Christ presenting his blood for us in the presence of God. And he says, The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his Son. His Spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. That's 
being accepted in the beloved. Christ has fulfilled all of God's righteousness on our behalf. Christ is God's beloved son. He won't turn away the presence of his son. And I'm accepted in him. That's good news. All right. And it's by his grace, not by our works. Verse 7, a favorite verse of mine, I think probably of many people. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In him, that is in Jesus Christ, we who believe have, from the moment we believe, redemption from the guilt and power of sin through his blood, that is through what he has done and suffered for us at Calvary. The forgiveness of sins, that is the kind of redemption that forgives all of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, by the measure of his abundant, overflowing, free mercy and favor. Now, regarding grace here, um, I've said that, and we've said, several of us have said, that there are a couple of definitions for grace that I think fit well with the way the word is used in the New Testament. One is the broader definition. It's certainly true. Grace is God's unmerited favor. That is undeniably true. It certainly is. And then there are a narrower definition that I think fits very well with the context in which the word grace is used, and at least in many places in the New Testament, is God's power working in the heart of the believer, enable him to do what pleases God. So God's enabling power. Now, clearly in this case, in verses 6 and 7, that the salvation is through the riches of his grace, uh, the broader definition certainly fits. It's by God's unmerited favor. Does the narrower definition fit? Can it be at all a reference to God's enabling power? Well, I'm not sure, but just maybe, because when you think about it, um, it um, we had to understand enough of the plan of salvation to know that we needed to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. And now, don't understand it all. We had to understand enough of it. More on that in a minute or two. And that was by grace. Grace enabled us to understand enough of the plan of salvation, to just to realize, I need a Savior. I'm lost. I need to be saved. Grace convicted us of our sin. Grace showed us that we were sinners. Grace taught us that uh, Jesus was the Son of God and uh, revealed him to us through God's word. Grace enabled us to repent of our sins. We don't suppose we could have done that on our own. Grace enabled us to believe. We couldn't have done that on our own either. So whether this particular use of the word was intended uh, to mean the narrower definition or only the wider definition, certainly the narrower definition fits for much that is necessary Uh, that was necessary and that did happen in order to place us in Christ. Okay, verse 8. In which, that is, in his grace, he made us, in which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Excuse me, we'll try this again. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. There we go. He made his grace abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, through his supremely wise plan of salvation. And what 
what an amazing plan it is. And this, I, the apostle enters in, into it here in the next several verses. God's amazing plan of salvation. Uh, but, you know, when angels by transgression fell, justice consigned them all to hell. But mercy formed a wondrous plan to save and honor fallen man, John Newton wrote. And what an amazing plan this is. Prudence here is uh, phronese, phronese, which uh, Strong's Concordance tells me means understanding or practical wisdom. Prudence would be a good word for that, understanding also or practical wisdom. Now, is that phronese in God or in us? Well, in God, uh, originally, right? I mean, it originates with God. He would be the fountain of that. He had it in the beginning. It is an, a, a characteristic of his nature to have phronese, to have all understanding and practical wisdom. And yet God wrought this in us, also by his grace, giving us the ability to understand his plan of salvation to the extent that we needed to understand it in order to accept it. We would understand it all. There are, you know, Paul talks about, oh, the depths and of the wisdom and mercy of God. You know, who can find it out? Uh, Peter, uh, writing of the plan of salvations, the prophets testified of, you know, the, the uh, beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. And he said, into which things angels desire to look. Angels wish that they could figure out how this works, and they can't figure it out. And Charles Wesley wrote to, in uh, one of the verses of Anne Canopy, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design?' In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. So we can't understand all the depth of it. The angels can't. I don't know if we ever will or if we'll be finding out more through all eternity. We'll find that out, whether that be the case or not. But by his grace, he gave us enough phronese to understand what we needed to understand in order to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead and to repent of our sins and to trust Christ for our salvation. Verse 9, Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. The word mystery here in the Greek is mysterion. That's Kind of, kind of a cognate there. You can see the relation. Within the pagan cults, the pagan religions of that day, there were actually a whole species of religions called the mystery cults. But with any of the pagan religions of that day, a mysterion was a secret that would be known only to those who had been initiated into that cult. In the New Testament, however, a mysterion was something of the counsels of God once hidden but now revealed in the gospel, something man could never figure out on his own and could know only when God chose to reveal it. So the mystery of his will, how he had planned to save us, man never could have figured that out. But God revealed it to us according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. 
that in the dispensation. In the Greek, eis oikonomion, I'll get it out here, oikonomion, uh, you can see that there's a relationship or almost a cognate a relationship with our word economy. And it comes from that root in the sense that the economy uh, administers who is going to have more wealth. And the economy does that. More directly, though, um, the word oikonomion is uh, translated uh, administration or stewardship. So an ace is for or for the purpose of or to the end that or with a view to. So uh, with a view to or for the purpose of, the, of administration or with a purpose of stewardship of the fullness of the times that were uh, of the seasons, one could say. And this refers to the perfect timing and completeness of every element of God's plan of salvation. From the fall of man in the garden, man fell, and God said, and God knew it already, so it was really settled from eternity past. All this it was actually planned. It began to be revealed to man. The need for it arose in time with the fall of man. But God knew it all before from the foundation of the world, the lamb that was slain, and so on. And he took, but God told man after the fall that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. And then all the times and all the seasons, the proper times, many times through many ages of time, for prophets to foretell uh, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow and all that would be involved in that in the Old Testament prophecies, though they couldn't figure out exactly what it meant. And the prophets themselves searched water, what manner of times the Holy Spirit that was in them did testify when, it, when the Holy Spirit showed them these things. And it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they ministered these things. All those times, and then there was a time for uh, Christ the Messiah to be born of a virgin and to live a sinless life and to attest to his divinity by many signs and wonders, by many mighty signs and wonders given in connection with his claim of divinity and thus validating his claim of divinity. And for God to validate his claim of divinity by an audible voice from heaven on at least two occasions that this is my beloved son. And there was a time for Christ to die for our sins. And then there was a time for him to rise from the dead. And God raised him up. And there was a time for him to ascend into heaven and to send the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the parakleton, to, um, to be our, our helper, our one who comes alongside to help. All those things, the times and seasons, uh, all perfectly worked out according to God's amazing plan of salvation. He might gather together in one all things in Christ, that all creation would be restored and reunited under the headship of Christ. And all the mischief of man's sin, starting with the fall and from there on forwards, would all be undone in Christ. And he would restore all things. Verse 11, got to move fast here, a little bit of time left. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Christ we have a portion in his inheritance, and we have been made a part of Christ's heritage or inheritance, since God determined in advance to save all those who would be in Christ. Verse 12, that we who first 
first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now, Paul here speaks of Jews who had hoped in the coming Messiah and recognized Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth as the Messiah. And that could be people like Simeon in the temple who sees the baby Jesus being brought in to be dedicated, to, present, to be presented to the Lord. And uh, Simeon says, Now, Lord, let thy servant depart in peace, for I have seen thy salvation. Or it could be like uh, the twelve uh, disciples of John the Baptist, or who had, whether they had ever seen John the Baptist, or they had heard of the preaching of John the Baptist, and they had believed and they had been baptized with John's baptism, and in, in looking forward to the one who would be sent. Uh, and uh, and as, as soon as they heard about Jesus and Paul demonstrated to them that Jesus was this Messiah who was coming, they immediately believed. Or it could be someone like Paul himself who kicked against the pricks and persecuted the church until God finally laid him out flat, literally, uh, in the dust of the Damascus Road and got his attention. As God has ways of getting our attention when he needs to, when he decides to. And they believed, and so those who first believed, the Jews who believed in their Messiah, and then uh, their salvation was to the glory of God. And then in verse 13, in him you also trusted, you Gentiles, because the Ephesian church was made up mostly of Gentiles, in him you also trusted after you heard of the word of truth, the, word of you, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Remember those 12 disciples of John the Baptist. And Paul, Paul says, so did you receive the Holy Spirit after you or when you, uh, when you believed? And they said, we never even heard whether there was any Holy Spirit. And he says, well, there is. <laughs> Let me tell you. And he tells them, and they believe in the Lord Jesus, and they believe, and they receive the Holy Spirit as all New Testament believers who are saved by faith in the finished work of Christ do have the Holy Spirit, uh, Romans tells us, any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. So uh, they received that Holy Spirit as the uh, seal. God sealed it, and elsewhere we find Paul, and I think also Peter, in different places, talking about how God sealed the fact that Gentiles could be saved by grace through faith in Christ. God sealed this by giving the Holy Spirit to them. And then in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The guarantee, both a pledge and a foretaste of our inheritance, as one commentator put it. Guarantee here, arabon, in the Greek is an earnest, that is a part payment in advance, in advance for security. The old King James uses the word earnest here, the earnest of our inheritance. Actually, to me, the word earnest is still comprehensible because anytime you buy or sell a house, an earnest is involved, right? You make a bid on a house uh, and you put down earnest money. And they, then that shows that you're serious. You are putting money on the line. Yes, I am serious about buying this house. And uh, I am not going to withdraw the terms on which I've made this off offer. And uh, God is not going to withdraw the terms on which he's made his offer to us. Uh, it's, he has given us the Holy Spirit to show that he is in earnest. Until the redemption of the purchased possession, until the church, which Christ has purchased with his own blood, shall be fully delivered from all sin and sorrow and promoted to everlasting glory. All right, well, 
Um, our time is up. Thank you for your attention. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your wonderful plan of salvation, this amazing way of salvation that you've provided for us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you for all that we enjoy in him. Help us to uh, dwell upon that and to feed upon that in our hearts and to rejoice in it today and every day. We pray for your blessing in the service to follow. Pray that you